buddy, let me tell you something. You need to shut down. You're putting people's lives in jeopardy. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting right now on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington every single Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern. If you're listening to us live on the radio, awesome. Thank you. Congratulations. If you'd like to kind of follow up on all of our other stuff, we do have this show in podcast form. You can go to ConsumerChoiceRadio.com to find that version uh, plenty there. I think that'll be very fun for much of our audience. Uh, you can also find our program in all the podcasting apps. Be sure to like and uh, be sure to give us a, a nice review. We like that every now and then. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, reporting to you from Vienna. It's uh, It's been a while, and I do have to thank my co-host, David Clement. Uh, he hosted the show solo last week, so I could do a little bit of the Thanksgiving. David, sir, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. Thank you for that. Yeah, last week was uh, a great guest, uh, Dr. Singer, uh, back on the program. We got lots of great feedback uh, on that one for people who were curious about vaccines. So um, for anybody who missed it, we chatted fully about vaccines, mRNA vaccines, um, what the safety and efficacy uh, trials look like. So a real, uh, a real fact finder uh, episode for anyone who's interested in vaccines. And of course, that is a huge topic now because as I'm sure you've seen, Yael, the United Kingdom has actually approved the Pfizer vaccine and is expected to start vaccinating people uh, next week. And so wow. crazy turnaround. And I, that really puts the pressure on everyone else. And I don't know what the timelines are like in, in the U.S. or in um, the EU, but I know in Canada there has been, there has been a lot of discussion about um, the timeline and whether there's a plan. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, exactly. Um and so yeah, this really puts the puts the fire to the feet of of national governments in terms of all right, the the clock has started. The UK has kicked us off. Um, now it's your turn to to get things moving. So that'll be interesting to see how that progresses because I mean, it doesn't matter where you are as a voter. I think it's pretty safe to say that one of the it, task number one throughout the pandemic has been trying to figure out how to avoid what happened to Italy. <laughs> and then task number two is how do we roll out the vaccine when it's available so we can get life back to normal. So um, we'll see what happens there. I don't know what your take is on that or if you've seen anything else in terms of timelines, either in the U.S. or the EU. Yeah, it's definitely moving at a, a quick pace. And, you know, we just hope that I mean, essentially, I don't really care which company wins out. I don't care which company, um, you know, has these big contracts. Just get this stuff to market, 
get it to people and allow us to open up again so that we don't have to deal with the ridiculousness of continued lockdowns and so that you and I here on Consumer Choice Radio don't need to talk about how the different the rules are in this country or that country or that state or that province because this is getting really tiresome. A lot of it is probably very dubious both health-wise and also legally. Um, many of these things, uh, this just is happening in Austria and parts of the U.S. I know that many of these lockdown uh, sort of regulations are being knocked down in courts left and right. So they're they're really going to have to mm. figure out, you know, some good legal basis for continuing, or we can get everybody uh, who would like to sign up vaccinated and, and kind of get rid of this. Uh, but yes, great program again last week with Dr. Jeffrey Singer that you conducted, David. I learned a lot. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, if there was a, a guy that we could appoint to be head of medical anything in any country, I think it would be Dr. Singer. Guy was amazing. You guys can find that uh, previous episode on consumerchoiceradio.com or in our podcast feed. Uh, that was great. And good to see timelines changing everywhere. You know, that's good. And, you know, I thought all this uh, COVID mess, you know, whenever, whenever this first came out in January, David, and we were in Davos and, and uh, we were hobnobbing with the elites discussing the Great Reset. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, <laughs> we didn't think that, you know, we would still be talking about this today, that it would still be this huge monstrosity that's taken over so much of our lives. And uh, I do have a clip of, of someone who I think also contributed, not just the vaccine researchers and companies, uh, but, but someone else. Uh, would you like to hear this? Uh, I would. I'm, I'm. I'm. I think I know who it is, but I'm excited to see. Let's get Jamie to play that clip. All right. Let's uh, let's start this off here. tell me who this is is this the haha pastor the, the pro-trump uh, pastor of course this is uh <laughs> this is a uh, pastor kenneth copeland uh who you know has not really shot to fame but you know he's a laughable dude and uh, he had a nice little sermon that he gave and i think we <laughs> even played this i want to say we actually played this some some weeks ago you know his uh, you know bashing COVID away and uh, somebody meshed it with a nice little guitar solo which I thought was a, it's a great <laughs> job. I actually I love that. Uh, but good to know that he had his forces working, uh, you know, to get, try to get everybody back in order. And yeah, I mean, this is a guy who um, I think many of us were a bit lost uh, in the last couple of months, but thanks to, uh, you know, Pastor Copeland here, we got, got back on track. <laughs> so it's interesting. I'll play the full clip uh, at the very end of the program for those who are interested. And then we also have a awesome interview uh, that we have lined up here, David, before we go into to more local stuff, with Sinclair Davidson. So he is a, a professor at the RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. So we're going to open up the Anglosphere here a little bit and uh, chat with our colleague Sinclair. He's also a fellow at the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, he actually wrote a book earlier this year about policy responses to COVID-19 uh, globally, and I think that he had many co-authors, people in the, in the States, people in Canada, people in Australia and Europe, 
uh, that was published with the American Institute for Economic Research. So uh, we're going to have an awesome conversation with Sinclair Davidson. Uh, it's not easy to pull together interviews across many continents, but uh, we were able to do it here, David. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge when you're maneuvering uh, three time zones and 18 hours difference. But um, yeah, a great interview. Uh, I know our, uh, our listeners will certainly love what uh, Sinclair has to say. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. It is our unique pleasure to be speaking with a man who is in the future around the world. We're speaking with Professor Sinclair Davidson. He's a professor of economics at the RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, and also an adjunct economics fellow at the Consumer Choice Center and a host of other organizations. Sinclair, thanks so much for jumping on the air with us today. Thank you for having me, and hello from the future. There we go. He knows he knows what's going to happen, guys. Uh, so principally, I wanted to bring you on. You are uh, obviously an academic who writes about many topical things that we discuss and, and the things that we focus on, but also that I think are of grave concern to everyone. And uh, most recently, you're co-author of a book, Unfreeze, How to Create a High-Growth Economy After the Pandemic, and I wanted to read a quick line. I don't know if it's from the book or it's from many of the journal articles that you guys have been publishing with your co-authors. Governments cannot freeze an economy, thaw it out months later, and expect it to come back to life. Economies do not hibernate for the winter like a sleepy but otherwise unharmed and intact bear. Unless some specific steps are taken, steps we will outline in this book, the most likely outcome is that the economy thaws into a pile of mush. Sinclair, how do we avoid the mush post-COVID? Well, we, we have to start off by diagnosing the economy correctly. And a lot of people have the view of an economy as a machine. And unfortunately, this comes from the social engineering aspects, which are even taught in economics programs these days. You know, you tweak this, you twiddle that, and then all of a sudden the economy does that or the next thing. So the, the economy is not a machine. So you have to start off by saying it's, it's not something, it's not a computer where you just hit the, the sleep button and it switches off and you hit it again and it just roars back to life again. The, the, the economy is an organic network of people interacting. And it's those people's dreams, their aspirations, their plans that are all moderated and coordinated by the price mechanism. And what has happened is that during the COVID crises, governments have just come in and they've said, let's stop this, let's freeze that, let's slow this down, let's kind of speed that up. So there's been this massive intervention in the economy in a massive central planning approach. Now, we know central planning fails. We know it has never worked anywhere in the world where it has ever been attempted. And even now, even though governments have come in and in March of this year, they may have had good reason for trying to do this, I still think uh, the economic damage from the policy response to COVID is going to be massive and is still being underestimated even as we speak. So this week in Australia, the government announced, the, the Australian Bureau, Bureau of Statistics announced that the economy had grown 3.3% in the last quarter. And this is a massive rebound. Today, they're actually reporting, this is my your future, my present. Today, they're reporting that by June of next year, our economy will be back where it was 
before COVID. Now, when I walk down my main street on the CBD of Melbourne, I see on every other store these massive full lease signs or going out of business signs and all this sort of stuff. So do we really believe that by June of next year, all those stores will be restocked, will be reopened, will be the same businesses or a slightly different business operating in that store? Because that's what they're telling us. Whereas in actual fact, what they're really saying is that our GDP may be very similar to what it was, um, which I, I, I don't believe it will be. But what they're really saying is that people's lives will be back to where they were. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that it's just not true. Economies are about people, their dreams, their expectations, their hopes. And to avoid all of that going to mush, there are a whole bunch of things governments need to do. And the first thing is they need to deregulate. Uh, we've had massive regulation build up over a long period of time. That regulation is no longer fit for purpose. The economy that that economy, that that, that regulation was regulating is gone. So if we need regulation, well, we need to think about what it is. Uh, we need to reimagine our labor market policies. Uh, we have very, very sticky, rigid labor markets. Um, the, and if you look at how governments are behaving, they kind of think we've got a spending problem. You know, we're just going to pump money into the economy. Our, our national debt has, is at levels not seen in peacetime ever. Um, so we, we don't have a spending problem. We've actually got a working problem. We need to get people back to work and, 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 and having jobs, um, getting them out of the house. Then, of course, uh, one of my favorites always, uh, uh, flatten the tax system, uh, promote entrepreneurial behavior through permissionless innovation. Um, you know, we, we, we like to think that we have a system whereby you can go out and do whatever you want and then the government will come and, and, and regulate you. In actual fact, nowadays, you need to get the government's permission to do almost anything. And this has worsened during COVID. Um, here in Australia, we actually had a thing called a permitted worker, somebody who was allowed out of their house to go to work. You had to have a... a, 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 a like an internal passport. The police would stop you at a roadblock and say, where is your, your, your permit? Um, absolutely shocking. And then, of course, uh, subsidiarity. Um, I'm a huge fan of driving political decision-making down to the lowest possible level. Unfortunately, we live in a world where, even in federalist systems, uh, unfortunately, we have these great centralizations occurring. Um, so subsidiarity, drive decision-making down as far as you possibly can. Um, and these are the sorts of things that are going to actually allow us to grow ourselves back into prosperity. Um, it's not just a case of our GDP has got to be back to where we were. It's a case of our lives have got to be back to where they were. And that is what is important here, not just some arbitrary measure that gets, uh, that gets produced by the government every quarter. So that's what I think needs to be done, and that's what our book was about. And, and a couple couple follow-ups there. When you talk about the idea that the economy is an engine, I can't help but think back to, and I'm sure that you've seen this, but many of our listeners probably have not, the the Keynes versus Hayek rap. Yes. Um, yeah, I encourage anyone listening to listen to the Keynes versus Hayek rap. And there's a great quote in there where the actor obviously playing Hayek says, the economy's not a car, there's no engine to stall, no expert can fix it, there's no it at all. The economy's us, we don't need a mechanic. Put away the wrenches, the economy's organic. Which is a really foreign concept for people who don't think about the economy that way. They think, oh, okay, well, 
the this month it's projected that the GDP of Canada has rebounded or has grown 40%. It's like, okay, well, that's great, but there's still a list of 140 restaurants that are permanently closed in Toronto and those it's, are not coming it's, back. Um, it's my, my follow-up on, on the labor market side of things or what I like to call the, the Uberization of everything um, we've seen, and Yael and I have talked about this uh, quite extensively, laws like AB5 in California, where legislators will attempt to apply old, often outdated labor market restrictions on the gig economy. Um, is that something that you're seeing in Australia as well? Because from our perspective, for Yael and I, it's for us, it's a no-brainer. We should be moving in the direction of open markets, of more mobility uh, and making the space less sticky. Um, but I'm wondering if that is the, the mindset of legislators uh, down under or if they're kind of falling into that trap of wanting to treat gig economy workers like traditional laborers. Our, our regulatory system for a long time has had that hostility to the gig economy, even before the gig economy was a thing. So for a long, long time, uh, um, our tax office, for example, which also administers our superannuation system, which is like our, our, our private pension system, um, for a long, long time has been waging war against what it called contractors. Because the whole purpose of the contracting system was more or less to engage in regulatory arbitrage away from those aspects of the labor market, which made it impossible to employ people. And bearing in mind, when it's impossible to employ people, it's impossible to meet consumer demand for goods and services. And so um, businesses that actually wanted to put on, on contractors and have more flexibility would be harassed by the authorities, would be harassed by the, the tax office, would be harassed, of course, by, by labor unions and all those sorts of things because they were introducing that flexibility into meeting consumer demand. So what, what we actually have in, in, in the last, so since the Industrial Revolution, we've seen a massive massification of, of, of how the economy works. And when you have a, that massification and you have things happening at, at, at large scale, it obviously becomes very easy to regulate everything as being the same. So you have a lot of conformity. What has happened since the end of the, uh, I call it the industrial economy in scare quotes, but we still have an industrial economy. But what has happened as a result of the information technology changes and the digitization of the economy is that we can now have more of a niche economy where we can meet specific needs and demands. Now, that kind of undermines the massification and conformity and the one-size-fits-all approach that we've adopted since the, the, the Industrial Revolution. And of course, when our economy was a one-size-fits-all approach, our regulatory system was a one-size-fits-all approach. And so... We actually need to start regulating, need to be regulated on a niche basis because I'm not going to say we have to have no regulation at all. But what I am going to say is the regulation for the industrial revolution is inappropriate re uh, uh, regulation for the gig economy. We're speaking with Professor Sinclair Davidson here on Consumer Choice Radio, the big talker, 106.7 FM. Professor Davidson obviously uh, covers a lot of economics over there at uh, RMIT University, and you're, we're talking a little bit about technological change and sort of reshaping the economy. 
Uh, I have to mention, of course, that you are uh, one of the pioneering academics in the, the field of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. I uh, have to mention that, very important. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of innovation there. You know, I've, I've followed it for a long time, and, you know, there's a lot of very interested people uh, who would love to see some kind of grand evolution. Does this kind of COVID moment allow for, since we're all working online, conducting this interview online, you know, adapting, adapting to work at home, is there a kind of path or avenue where we're going to have some kind of grand permiss uh, permissionless innovation thanks to cryptocurrencies or blockchain that comes out of this? Are we heading in a good direction or a bad direction? What are your thoughts there? Um, I, I think in general, we are moving in a good direction. I, I'm incredibly optimistic and bullish around technology and what it's going to do and how it's going to enhance human flourishing. Um, and that's not just because the Bitcoin price is at an all-time high, but okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, um, if, 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 you, uh, uh, if you're thinking about buying Bitcoin now, you should have bought it uh, a few years ago. Um, but yes, the, the, I'm, I'm incredibly bullish and, and, and optimistic about the, about the technology. And it's not the cryptocurrency itself that's, also, that's important. It's all the other things that come with it. Now, we have had a COVID moment. Um, there's there a great deal of, of corporate and institutional hostility to digitizing because I reckon there were first mover disadvantages. No one single employer would suddenly say to all their people, listen, why don't you go home and sit in your garage for six months and work from there? Um, whereas uh, when COVID came along and government shut everything down, all of a sudden, everybody got sent home and told, work from home if you can, make do with what you can. Um, so at the beginning of the year, I thought programs and, 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 and products such as Skype were magnificent. Um, now I'm kind of thinking, gee, Skype, you know, that's like old world technology. Um, I'm, I'm thinking now Zoom and, and, and all these other things. Um, you know, so, so we've all simultaneously had to overcome the first mover disadvantage. We've all had to do things. We've all had to be entrepreneurial. We've all had to reinvent new ways of doing work. I don't think we're going to go back 100% back into the office and do things like we used to. Um, I actually think there's going to be a lot more working from home because that's, uh, that taboo against, you know, your manager not being able to stand over your shoulder 24-7 is suddenly gone. Uh, you, we, we know for many people, you can work from home. Uh, we've had to upgrade our technology. We've had to change ways of doing things. There's been a lot of entrepreneurial discovery that has occurred in the, the last six months or eight months or so. And that's going to flow forward going into the economy. And also the changes in the CBD. We no longer need all that office space. Um, so there, there's going to be a lot of things happening um, so that are very exciting. And there's a lot more acceptance of digital activity than what there was. So that's all a positive. But I think it was Bill Gates who kind of said that we always um, overestimate what's going to happen in the next two years and we underestimate what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I would love to say to you, there's going to be a big boom and then all of a sudden uh, the, the, the crypto economy is going to be here. I think it's going to be incremental. Um, and the biggest challenge right now is actually making the crypto economy user-friendly. 
Um, right now, it's actually not that particularly user-friendly. And until it becomes more user-friendly, we're not going to see wide-scale adoption. So I think uh, the, the, the entrepreneurial space right now is one, bringing new products. I mean, a lot of the DeFi stuff is very interesting. That's certainly going to hollow out the banking system, I, 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 I imagine, in the next few years. Um, a lot of the supply chain stuff is also very interesting. That's also going to change how business is done there. Um, it's also going to change a lot of branding and you know all those peripheral industries, but it's 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 not going to be one big boom. I think the 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 Facebook Libra project I think is particularly interesting um, because right now um, Bitcoin and, and and a lot of the other currencies, cryptocurrencies online are still something of a niche market because we have that that, that, that user interface which isn't very friendly. But when Facebook comes along, if you can send a Facebook message, you will be able to send money. And so I'm actually very hopeful and excited that Libra will be a, a launching pad to the adoption, widespread adoption of cryptocurrency. So, yeah, one follow-up on that is we've had someone like Peter Schiff on the show before. He obviously falls into the gold bug category of, um, of someone who's, quite anti-cryptocurrency. Their criticism is that these currencies are too volatile. They're treated like speculative assets, um, so much so that they can't realistically be used as a means of exchange. Do you buy that argument? Do you doubt, or do you think that volatility is something that the space is going to have to deal with for a while? Uh, there are actually two, two points in there. Um, I actually agree with the notion that Bitcoin can't really be currency. So I'm going to upset the Bitcoin maximalists out there. So sorry, guys. Um, there, there is a lot of confusion around the functions of money. And there's a lot of confusion around that function of money, which is called the store of value. Now, we know uh, a currency is a medium of exchange, a user account, and a store of value. And everybody says to us, Bitcoin is awesome because it's a fantastic store of value. Now, what people are doing there is that they're using the plain English language meaning of the store value. So if I bought Bitcoin in 2012, let's say before the first big boom at, I don't know, a dollar or so, and now it's worth 24,000 Australian dollars, I think, wow, what an awesome store of value. I had a dollar, I've now got $24,000. That is not how economists talk about the store of value. When economists talk about the store of value, they are talking about inflation and deflation. So for a good money, my dollar must be worth more or less a dollar today, a dollar next year, a dollar, or the purchasing power must be more or less a dollar today, a dollar next year. It must have been a dollar last year. Because if the currency is inflating, becoming less valuable, what that gives me is an incentive to buy more stuff now. That distorts the economy. If the currency is becoming more valuable, that gives me an incentive to not buy stuff now and to, to wait. That also distorts the economy. So the, the store of value is a story around monetary neutrality, the impact the purchasing power has on the economy. So unfortunately, a lot of people say Bitcoin is a great store of value, where in actual fact, Bitcoin is a great investment. Now, if you are having an investment, you love volatility. Because the next time Bitcoin falls in price, I'm going to buy some more. Um, but if you are thinking about money, you hate volatility. I don't want to turn up next year and suddenly discover that my dollar isn't worth very much. Uh, 
Um, you know, so, so Bitcoin itself is not a good money. And I'm putting money in scare quotes here. Bitcoin is a great investment and the technology underpinning Bitcoin is awesome. But for money, we actually need to have things like stable coins. They're going to be far more valuable as money. And so when you look at something like Libra, um, they're going to have a portfolio of uh, um, assets underpinning it. Um, I, I don't know how exactly they're going to do it, but I imagine they are going to use Markowitz's uh, frontier work uh, after Harry Markowitz won the Nobel Prize in 1990. They're going to form, I suspect, a zero variance portfolio. And more or less, this is going to be high X commodity money in digital space. So it's got great pedigree, um, great ideas. Uh, we'll have the, 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 the store value aspect, which Bitcoin doesn't have. So um, I love Bitcoin. I love the cryptocurrencies. But I, I, I really get very frustrated as an economist when I see people carry on about what a great store of value it is. It's a terrible store of value. It's a great investment. There you go. We don't uh, recommend financial advice here on the program, but there'll definitely be a lot more to come from that. So I'll definitely point to much of your research, uh, Professor Davidson. You have a uh, fairly uh, good academic cred when it comes to this. This is not the first time that you're talking about it. And I believe you, you lead an entire blockchain uh, department or project uh, in Melbourne. Is that correct? I'm, I'm one of the team, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I, I'm, I'm not the leader. That is, I, um, yeah. It, in, in a previous life, I, I was a university administrator, so I try to avoid all of those leadership things. But uh, I'm one of the two <laughs> professors in the unit, yes. Well, as, as an economist, you also know how to avoid uh, particular parts of work in, in admin and red tape. So I, I do uh, <laughs> do say that's a lot of courage <laughs> there. Uh, so we're, we're speaking yes. with Professor Sinclair Davidson here. Uh, he's also a contributor to the Cadillacy Files, cadillacyfiles.com, one of the longer longest-running center-right blogs across the world, certainly in the Anglosphere, uh, based there in Australia. And there's so many topics that you've been able to hit on there uh, that I think would be of interest to our audience. But one I, I wanted to get your take on uh, fairly quickly has to do with uh, any of these public broadcasters. Uh, obviously not a problem necessarily in the United States, but a huge problem in the United Kingdom and Canada, uh, also in Australia. You know, why do you have a beef with uh, down there, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation? Why do you think these things should be privatized or at least subject to competition? What's that all about? The, the, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation was developed in the 1930s here in Australia um, based upon the British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, and the, the British Broadcasting Corporation had this, uh, had this charter to entertain and inform. Now, if we kind of think of how the world looked like in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a massive media shortage. There were very few places where people could get news and information from. And dare I say, it, there may even have been some sort of market failure. Now, bearing in mind that this market failure which occurred in Australia and the United Kingdom did not occur in the United States. The United States had a very different regulatory open broadcasting approach to anybody could start up a radio station in the United States. But in the United Kingdom and Australia, obviously, you couldn't. And so the government stepped in and designed, built these organizations to provide news, entertainment, information in a world of shortage. Now we fast forward 80, 90 years. We no longer live in this world of shortage. We live in this world of surplus. There is 
absolutely no shortage of information being flooded into the world to the extent that people now complain about fake news um, and, and, and not true news and all this sort of stuff. So we now live in a world of not, not surplus, we live in a world of gluttony of information. And I'm going to say this is an awesome thing. This is a good thing. This is fantastic. But nonetheless, we have these organizations which still kind of try to act as gatekeepers, uh, try to tell us what to do, how to think, how the world is, which, of course, in and of itself is immoral. But the worst aspect of it is that they use the coercive power of the state to finance themselves. They've also become, in, in, in my view, extremely left-wing um, and, and that in and of itself is not necessarily a problem, but they are, because they are, journalists tend to be intellectuals, and Schumpeter told us that intellectuals tend to be left-wing, they tend to question, they tend to undermine the institutions of society, and there is a role for that. But I do think, though, that there's no reason why the government should be taxing everybody to pay for it. Um, there is a market for it, and uh, people want to pay for that sort of stuff. They should be allowed to pay for it. I don't want to pay for it. Now, in, in Australia, the Australian, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation is paid for out of general revenue taxation. In the United Kingdom, they have a special tax. Well, they don't call it a tax because taxes are bad. They call it the licensing fee. And the licensing fee is paid to the BBC. And they pretend it's not really a tax. But it is a tax because if you don't pay it, people with guns come to your house and take you away, just like any other tax. Um, so, you know, we, we, we shouldn't, you know, it's, it's you know, all this, this fiscal illusion that we have in the world. It's not a tax. It's a levy. It's a price. It's a this. If people with guns come to your house, it is a tax if you haven't paid it. Um, so uh, the, the, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation gets funded to the tune of a billion Australian dollars every year, year in, year out. And the problem is it makes them lazy in addition to being left wing. Um, so, you know, when the food's on the table, when you get there, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go out and get a customer. You don't have to be responsive to consumers. Um, so it's a producer collective. And the governments have failed to, to exercise any serious control over it. Um, they more or less run around, do what they want, harass people, destroy lives, you know, use the power of the press to, to, to pursue particular avenues. Um, and again, if, if there was a private organization, well, there's competition in the market. There's competition in the market for ideas. But these guys do not compete in the market. They simply exist. And so... My view is they should be privatized because it is valuable. It's, 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 not, it's not worth nothing. We don't know what it's worth because, it's, you know, the socialist calculation, the bad bureaucrats can't tell you what something's worth. So we should privatize it. And, and my argument is we privatize it by giving it away for free to the current employees, the shares. And when they sell the shares, they will obviously have to pay capital gains tax on selling the shares. And when they pay the capital gains tax, that is when the government will be paid for the value of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So a, a very nice, neat market so, solution yeah. to, to this problem. Very interesting idea. And another thing that's very common that a lot of people don't realize, and this is like the seen and unseen, is the spillover effect on the advertising market. So when you have a public broadcaster that openly takes advertising dollars, they undercut the private sector and private broadcasters struggle to compete for advertising dollars because 
in the Canadian example, the CBC has a billion dollar head start and can't go bankrupt. So it's it's much it's, it creates a lot of disparity and skews the marketplace, and then they line up yeah. at the trough for money, and it just creates that kind of vicious cycle. Well, what what is happening in Australia is that the Australian Broadcasting Corporation is not allowed to take advertising dollars, so we don't quite have that problem. But what we do have is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation broadcasts a lot of children's shows. And the ABC is exempt from the local content laws that the free-to-air channels are required to do. So the ABC gets some of the best children's shows from all around the world and broadcasts them advertising-free and with no local content rule. And so what happens is a lot of people watch the kids' ABC show and they don't watch the free-to-air kids' shows because um, uh, so, so that, that does distort advertising in that sense. Um, the other thing that it did do, it's we actually had a private fact-checking media company that got put out of business when the ABC started off their fact-checking company. But of course, the kind of facts that the ABC fact check are not quite the same facts that everybody else would kind of want to check. So they, they, they tend to fact check a lot of centre-right politicians and not so much centre-left politicians. And there's always very subtle nuances whereby a centre-right politician is wrong, whereas if the same thing had been said by a centre-left politician, it might not be so wrong. Um, you know, so those sorts of biases come in as well. So we don't have the direct advertising bias. But we do have the, uh, um, uh, the the crowding out effect. Now, the, the, there still is a problem because because they don't have to attract advertisers, they don't have to attract paying customers, they don't have to worry about attracting eyeballs either. So one of the things the ABC does is every year they commission research. How well loved is the ABC? And about eighty percent of the population love the ABC. And then you have a look at their ratings but only about 15% of the population watch the ABC. <laughs> so it's one of those things. Everybody loves it, but nobody watches it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. There, there, there's plenty of that. I, I think we can say uh, that for many governmental programs as well, but that's a whole other uh, conversation for another day. Uh, you've been listening to consumer choice radio. We've been speaking with professor Sinclair Davidson, phoning in, connecting the Anglosphere uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Professor Davidson, thanks so much. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Sink Davidson. Read his blog, Cadillacsy Files, where he has many other uh, authors on that blog, one of the longest-running center-right blogs in the Anglosphere. Uh, his research, we'll link to everything in the show notes. Professor Davidson, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, a great interview with Sinclair Davidson, um, definitely a friend of the show. And in, in, in kind of quick transition here, Yael, one, uh, one, it was a local story for me and is now an international story, um, is Adamson Barbecue. Um, and so I will actually play a short news clip here to give the listeners a primer on what's happened. Um, and then we'll go to what the premier of Ontario's response was. So Jamie, please play that uh, first clip. Give me a break. They can't have news. Nothing happens in Canada. Sorry, wrong button. For the second straight day, a rogue restaurateur has scoffed at lockdown orders, swinging open his doors, encouraging people to come and sit down and eat inside his Toronto barbecue restaurant. Well, that's now resulted 
in nine charges. But not before a scene of epic proportions brought out a whole cast of characters. Huh. So before before um, I let you opine, David, mm-hmm. I did see this story. You know, I, I saw early reports. I think the Toronto blog, one of these websites, is kind of reporting on it early on. Um, this is great. You know, we've had stories like this in various jurisdictions. And when I say it's great, I just think it's interesting to see how entrepreneurs are responding. But I did see the Rex Murphy uh, article in the National Post where he talks mm-hmm. about Adamson Barbecue and the epidemic of snobbery uh, because apparently people are uh, obviously chastising this guy, you can imagine, in many elite circles. So kind of interesting. But, uh, yeah, give us the lowdown. Give us a story. Uh, anything related to barbecue, I'm very partial to. So the second you send this well, clip, my, my ears perked up. <laughs> couple things. So first off, these guys make the best barbecue. It's the closest thing I've ever had in Canada that the closest thing to like Nashville or, or Southern barbecue. It's delicious. Um, so they said they're going to stay open. Uh, obviously all dining was restricted um, in the area. So no, out, no outdoor dining, uh, even at the time. So these are the um, Ontario rules. Correct. Yeah. Well, because that region, uh, had gone into a different phase. They, there's a color coded system. It, it reminds me of the, the war on terror color coded system back when Bush was president, but nobody really knew what anything meant. And they Forever just at for orange. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Toronto moved back. You weren't allowed to stay open. This barbecue um, owner said, no, we're going to stay open. And in fact, we're going to allow people to dine in. Um, and it ended up being, I think, the perfect example of the Streisand effect, where most people wouldn't have really known who this guy was, other than the coverage of it and the hysteria around it. And then that got amplified. So he was open day one. There was a good crowd. The police really didn't do anything. They just said, okay, well, all right, that's enough. But you've like you've had your fun. That's enough. Then um, he said, we're going to open up again tomorrow. And there was a huge crowd. So we're talking, I would estimate well over a hundred people. So quick question, David. Was he serving yep. and people were dining indoors? Or... Correct. Okay, so that's, yep. that was the, the main reason why uh, he was running afoul of the, the local yes. emergency laws. Yeah. Yes, and he wasn't enforcing any of the mask laws either. Um, and this is, where I, this is where things get really interesting for me because I, I don't think the province should have closed outdoor dining. And I think that they could have managed to allow for indoor dining to stay open under certain capacity restrictions. I think you can do that safely. Part of that is needing people to wear masks when they're inside. And I think that it was a real disservice to his cause to kind of go full Monty here and say, no rules, we're going back to normal. I understand his frustration, but for me, it it really was a disservice because immediately people are like, well, now this isn't just like a protest, this is dangerous. And then what made it worse is the police response. So the police go in overnight, they break into the, into the restaurant, they get a locksmith to change the locks. So he can't get back into the restaurant for day three. He then sneaks in the back door 
and breaks the locks and opens the door and tries to reopen. There are 30 police officers lining the building. Um, of course, not social distancing themselves. Um, there are large crowds. The police arrest the owner. There's a swarm of people around the police, um, which is problematic. Uh, and it just really kind of escalates um, from there. And kind of before I go into what has happened since then, we will cut real quick to the premier's response because Doug Ford did have some pretty strong words uh, for the owner of the barbecue shop. So let's run that one. The premier had this to say today. Buddy, let me tell you something. You need to shut down. You're putting people's lives in jeopardy. You know, I, I was, I, I always try to be nice the first time, but this guy is just totally ignoring public health officials. People are dying because of COVID-19. And he just wants to say, forget it and have everyone down there. Look, before again, before you go, David, <laughs> he's not doing it just for fun. He's doing it to open his business, which is he would be doing 100% of the time normally. I, I think you, you raised the point about, you know, not enforcing the mask rule or whatever, but he's not killing people. You know, this is, <laughs> I, I don't like uh, the imagery and I know... Uh, Premier Ford does a lot of great things for consumer choice. Uh, we're in a health pandemic now, so obviously all governmental institutions and organs are going to be criticized. Uh, but man, I, I do love the, the obvious Canadian. Buddy, stand yeah, down, buddy. buddy. Close buddy. down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing here is, is, is so Adam Scaly gets arrested, the, the owner of the shop. Um, a legal defense fund is created for him on GoFundMe, and immediately this thing goes viral. Oh, yeah. When I say viral, they have over $300,000 raised um, for his legal defense fund, which is now a defense fund for other businesses who want to stay open. Wow. And it's, I mean, like I said just a little bit ago, it's a perfect example of this Trizend effect where it's like this kind of medium-sized barbecue shops going to stay open. People go absolutely bananas and berserk about it. Um, it gets a ton of media attention and it just snowballs from there. And now this guy who happens to make great barbecue is a villain for some and a hero for others. Um, it's another instance of some pretty clear polarization. But I think what has been missed in the overall conversation about all of the COVID rules is just the hypocrisy of who has to stay open or who can stay open and who has to close. And so we've seen, we've seen this all throughout the U S we've seen this in Canada and specifically in Ontario. So, and I'll give you some examples where uh, large big box stores will be deemed essential and can sell um, can sell everything because they sell food. And then your local small store owned by, I mean, it's cliche to say, but let's say your mom and pop store has to be closed and can't do anything but curbside and online pickup. And so a lot of people are saying, wait a second, if I can stand in line at the LCBO or I can stand in line at Walmart, why can't I stand in line at this business? They should be able to stay open too. This is unfair to small business owners. And of course it is. Um, 
and it's hypocritical. And the real issue is, is that the more you have these kind of counterintuitive uh, measures where people look at them and they go, okay, well, obviously that is unfair. It casts more doubt among, or more doubt on what are maybe some of the, the, the more serious and, and legitimate restrictions or requirements like mask mandates. And so it just casts a cloud of doubt over the public health endeavor in its entirety. And then you get more people like Adam Skelly and you get more people like the, the people who were there unmasked supporting him, wanting to just completely dismantle every aspect of what public health is trying to do. And so it really is a problem. I mean, one example, and we've seen this now, so you have this disparity between big box stores and small retailers having to close. And some governments have said, okay, well, we're going to rope off areas in Walmart so that you can only buy essential items, which for me is just even more, it's like, okay, well, we made a bad call. So now we're going to make a second bad call and make the shopping experience worse um, for everybody by trying to arbitrarily decide what is necessary or essential, what isn't. Yeah. And, that, and that's the worst thing uh, that has really, and then this is every single jurisdiction is somehow many of these governmental officials and public officials are now conjuring up lists of which businesses are essential and which are not. And, you know, many of them, because they are forced to be closed, means that you don't have a means of purchasing things that might not be essential for you, but might be essential for someone else. And I actually faced this uh, this week. In Austria, we've had the stores closed. We've had a lockdown for the last couple of weeks. And I needed to buy mittens or gloves for my uh, daughter, who's a, a toddler. She, you know, we were having a lot of snow this week. It's getting really cold. And guess what? I can't buy gloves because all the stores are closed. I only have one option, and that's to go to Amazon. So normally I would probably have gone to, you know, some local shop here and, and purchased the mittens or gloves or whatever. But because everything's shut down, I have no option. That was pretty essential to me. Um, I can imagine if I didn't have a very good winter coat, I'd be much the same thing. You know, and, and this is the kind of thing, as soon as you start determining what's essential and what's not, all right, well, can this factory be open? Can this shop be open? Apparently, a glasses store can be open, but what about, you know, a place that actually offers warm clothes when it starts dipping below freezing? Uh, this is insanity. Yeah, and, and what's hilarious about the restrictions is that the people who are the most in favor of the restrictions are ultimately, are, are usually the people who will complain that Amazon has made so much money during the pandemic. Yeah. And you, it's like, it's, God, it's, you made these rules. It's the entire monopoly debate all over again. When you create these rules, they're going to favor the large incumbents, the people who have the resources to have awesome uh, supply chains that have the ability to offer things online, to ship things. I mean, this is exactly what's happening on, on a different scale. You know, that's yeah. why I hope with the, the vaccine stuff, Definitely, we can maybe stave off some of this, but uh, mm -hmm. I mean, come on. You're not allowed to have a restaurant if you eat outside. If you guys want to brave the Ontario cold winters and uh, eat your, your plate of pork, uh, I think you should be able to. But uh, yeah, again, well, I know it's, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think you should be able to. And I think that we should probably be able to do some form of limit on indoor dining as well, because I mean, you could maybe tolerate it at these temperatures, but give it a week or two and 
it's not really tolerable outdoors unless there's like a proper gazebo heaters and things like that. Oh, and, which, and we, we do see that in Portland, by the way, where there's this uh, exemption for outdoor dining. So these guys are just building entire outdoor tents and outdoor <laughs> establishments, which uh, actually look like indoor restaurants. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that. It's like, yeah, we outdoor dining is starting to look a lot like indoor dining. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting on the the retail side of things, and this goes back to the hypocrisy. So the Toronto Sun um, got hold of the data on exposures, and about I think it's zero point one percent of cases in Ontario stem from the retail sector. So for me, that sends a pretty clear signal that whatever we were doing worked. Sure. The spread at retail was not really a threat. And there isn't a justification for closing all of these, in air quotes, non-essential businesses. We should just go back to whatever we were doing that was working that had limited capacity and some other rules in terms of masks and other protections. That seemed to work. Now, the data on restaurants is a little higher from what we've seen. It's still murky. So I think that justifies some, some restrictions, obviously, on indoor dining. It would be reckless to have, um, to have people, like, to have a restaurant full capacity. People are eating without masks and talking and things like that. That certainly could be a problem. But there's a way that you could safely do this and safely manage it to, con- to control the spread. And I think that we've forgotten that. And we've maybe pulled this lockdown lever a little too quickly. And it goes back to, I mean, if you, when you and I were first chatting about lockdowns come like late March, early April, we both said, you only get one. You get to do this once. If you try and do it again, people are not going to comply And we've seen this across the board, whether it's Canadian Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, dining, people just start to ignore the public health um, suggestions and and mandates because they're just tired of it. Um, And so you have to figure out a way, how do we, how do we keep people trusting public health officials and the public health response? Um, How do we get them to trust what they're saying? Well, you have to be reasonable and you can't have these glaring hypocrisies. Yeah. Um, if you have these glaring hypocrisies, people just aren't going to listen. And then what happens if people don't listen? Cases go up and it just becomes this cycle of cases go up, they do more restrictions, people get more irritated. Cases go up, more restrictions, people get more irritated. And it's a huge net negative. So hopefully a vaccine can come soon and really pull us out of this because um, it has, uh, it's certainly taken its toll. And I'm sure that, I mean, Adamson Barbecue is just one uh, one example of this, but um, I'm sure that there are others, and I'm sure that there are others who are maybe thinking, okay, well, I'm going to try and stay open. I'm not going to make a big scene about it, and I'm going to do things safely, um, but I guarantee you there are probably now going to be other businesses who stay open just because they, they see the disparity in the public health response, and they say, well, this isn't fair, and so I'm just going to be engage in a little bit of civil disobedience here and most of that i think just comes from reacting to the hypocrisy yeah that's why i'm i'm thankful that uh, we had professor sinclair davidson on earlier Uh, he's actually been doing some great academic research around 
lockdowns and uh, many economic questions around the pandemic. And the facts and figures are almost the worst enemy of, of many of the public health officials here. Uh, if we look, go back to the school debate, which has affected me personally a bit, just because they, they did close down the, the kindergartens for a bit, but they are uh, back in order next week. You know, but uh, you can just imagine if you have young kids at home and they've been trying to learn remotely, and there's a lot of evidence showing that people have not really been able to do that very well, <laughs> which could be just we're not thinking creatively enough and we're, we don't have enough competition in the education space, which I think is a whole other debate. But looking at this uh, from the facts and figures and where people are actually catching it, I mean, this is one of the strangest times in the world where everyone is connected, everyone's online, everybody's got facts and figures at their disposal. And the more and more that people are analyzing numbers on, you know, how many children catch it, where people are catching it, small groups, all of this, it's just crazy to see that we don't necessarily have, and I, I hate this debate about the full grasp of the data, you know, people have different data, la, la, la. Really, in this case, everyone's got an entire interpretation or worldview based on these statistics and numbers, and many times they just don't matter or don't care. And uh, a lot of times they're very um, just kind of made up uh, the metrics by which we judge it. We say, okay, if 3% of children test positive in COVID, then we shut down the schools. Okay. But, you know, if we have, you know, however point percentage of them are, are actually getting hospitalized or getting sick or even getting COVID overall. Or, yeah. Or where they are. Right. Sure. So, so much of the virus response is regional. So in Toronto or Peel, if I'm using my own backyard as an example, I mean, there are some pretty serious hotspots and I can understand some additional uh, measures being taken. But then at the same time, if you roll out and you go, okay, what about Sudbury or Thunder Bay or rural Quebec or the East Coast? All of those restrictions don't really seem justified oh, yeah. if you look at where things are in those specific areas. And so that's a, that's another problem with this. So like you'll see, oh, well, cases are going up in – you cases are going up in North Dakota. North Dakota cases are getting really bad. And people are like, ah, oh, okay, like third wave, we have to lock down. It's like, yeah, well, that might, might, might make sense for North Dakota but it's not going to make sense for a state that's been trending downward for the last sure. 40 days. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that, that like, yes, there can be 1500 cases in Quebec, but it really depends on where you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and then again, it just goes back to that, that unfair nature of things. Let's say you were to lock down the whole province. You're going to have some really angry, angry people in rural Quebec going, wait a second, this doesn't apply to me. You should just lock down Montreal. That's where the cases are. And it's it's uh, always the big cities. It's urban versus rural. We see these debates come out again. Uh, plenty of fodder for us. It's the holiday season, so we'll definitely be able to cover this in the weeks to come. David, it's been a great program. Uh, it was awesome to have Professor Sinclair Davidson on. Some great insight from him. Uh, awesome research and writing that he's been doing throughout this. And uh, cool to see Consumer Choice Radio uh, branch out across all the Anglo uh, Anglosphere to be able to connect for today's program. Yes, yeah, fantastic. Thank you uh, to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll we'll catch you next week.
And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check with Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. I ice my chest, let it feel so cold, it feels up high. You'd call a major say one piece, it called it this, and I do so all right. You'd ice your not feels, you could call them in dough, there's people that are still out of dick, yo. Buddy, let me tell you something. You need to shut down.